I'm just going to go ahead and bring him on in. So please welcome the great, I'm going to say doubly great, <laughs> always swinging Jeff Hamilton. Oh, thank you, Johnny D. Uh, uh, I noticed that you've got a professional drum shop shirt on. Uh, is that to honor uh, Stanley at the pro drum shop? It it's most certainly is. Yeah. Yes, it most certainly is. I, I meant to mention that when we were off the air that it's, I knew you knew, and I know you guys are super tight. And I thought if he, he might tune in, you never know. He's got nothing else to do probably. No, no, he's busy picking out certain rivets for jazz drummers to come in and try to keep his store open. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he probably charges you a hundred dollars a rivet though, but you know, his... <laughs> no, I wish he would. Cause it would be, Better for me than the harassment as soon as I walk in the door. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, it, it brings to mind uh, a great hang that we all had at Stan's place for their 50th. I remember, um, I'm sure you were there, Jake Hanna, mm -hmm. rest, rest his soul. Jake was still with us, and Peter, and and Freddie Gruber, and a whole bunch of us were there. And it was, you know, I, I just, whenever I'm around you, Jeff, and I'm around all those those personalities, I just, I lay back and let, you and all the guys hold court because it's it's some of the funniest moments you can be around when you guys start telling stories and yeah uh, uh, it was uh it was interesting to first come out to la in 78 and uh and realize that that just by listening to these guys that you were egging them on because they could tell you were interested and it's like well i got another story about this and so you just you know the more you <laughs> keep your mouth shut the more you listen to these guys and of course you know gruber uh, you know, forget it. Nah, nah, you know, nah, you know, <laughs> on to the next thing. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, Jake, Jake, there were a couple of people who actually took Jake uh, and me out to dinner so he could uh, listen to our stories about, the, and then that grew into a drum lunch for various people, inclu including Stan and, and Pete and uh, Joe LaBarbera, Roy McCurdy, yeah. uh, Frank Cap, Ed, Ed Shaughnessy, uh, you know, so just kind of grew into this lunch from, from this guy taking us to lunch to watch the tennis match between between the Woody Herman band stories, you know, yeah, and and I was going to say a lot of a lot of ex Woody Herman alum in that in that group, right? I mean, yeah, Jake, that's true. Yeah. yeah, none of us um, could keep the job, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings to mind, you know, I was going to I was going to show you this picture earlier, and then I thought I'd wait a little while, but I can't wait any longer. Okay. I found this I found this picture, um, which I believe is from the uh, Pasic. Let's see the Pasic. 2002 or 2003 drummers of woody herman oh that was uh columbus ohio if that's exactly that, uh, columbus yeah columbus ohio and 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 dom lamont was supposed to be there uh but his doctor wouldn't let him fly and he 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 passed shortly after that convention yeah but yeah that was a that was a big big event it was so much fun uh jake became the uh the uh the ringmaster of all of that we did the rest of us just sort of sat around and listened to jake and but that panel discussion was was pretty hilarious joe la barbara jimmy yeah. rupp uh houghton steve houghton was there um and uh uh was ed soap there too I think. ed soap was there yeah, yeah he's the one who graciously announced me uh at the performance of uh all of us had the benchmark of being able to play caldonia which was six six seconds of chorus of the blues so yeah. it's fast and he said as long as you could play that you knew that you could go on woody herman's band and jeff hamilton could do that 
but he won't be able to do that for you tonight. Here's Jeff Hamilton. That was, that was your introduction. <laughs> My friend and self. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, between you and him, I mean, and I, I remember I remember that bar at the Hyatt uh, at, <laughs> in, in Columbus and all of you guys around a table and Jake holding court, absolutely. Who, That's right. I didn't know him well. I, 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 you know, I met him a handful of times. He was always so sweet, but, but I was always on my best behavior because it was Jake, you know? And, uh, but man, I just hearing you, I think you were like sitting there smoking a cigar and and, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I know I was enjoying some, some red wine with you, but, but Jake was just, we were all just kind of like, well, and, Gru- and Gruber, you know, Freddie yeah. Gruber, and then Len- Lenny was there. And so yeah. you just, it's like, you just know your place to keep your mouth shut and learn, you know. Right, um, right. There was one incident, uh, a Jake story quickly, that that uh, Steve Schaefer, Joe LaBarber, and I went to hear him at a club here in, in L.A. at the time. It's called Spazio's. Mm-hmm. And we sat right next to the hi-hat. We got the table right next to the hi-hat. Of course, wow. that's all he had. He had a hi-hat, snare drum, bass drum, and a cymbal, you know. Yeah. And so... We, he gets off the band and he starts telling Steve and Joe and I about this story about this one-legged dancer, Peg Leg Bates. He had a wooden leg, you know, and of course, we're in. Well, let's hear the rest of the story. And this idiot student gets off of the bar area, comes over and plops his, himself down between Jake and me. And we all look at him like, who invited you here? You know, this is like gold right here. We're, we're yeah. in the middle of the story. And the kid's listening. And and so Jake's talking about Peg Leg Bates. And he says, uh, he says, oh, the kid says, come on. This guy couldn't be that good. And Jake says, he was that good. He was so good that the horn players would put their horns under their jackets and get off the bandstand. Nobody could follow Peg Leg Bates. And the guy says, well, what could he What could he dance? He's got one leg. And Jake said, he danced the cha. <laughs> <laughs> that, that kind of sums up Jake Hanna, you know, as quick as could be. And... Uh, <laughs> And, and what am I going to follow that with? So you just keep your mouth shut and learn from Jake. <laughs> oh, right on, right on. Yeah, he he was he was something, man. He was something. By the way, Bill Platt. I will just say that uh, Bill Platt is watching and he says hello to Bill. Oh, Platt. hi, Bill. Great of you to join us. Oh, yeah. fantastic. Um, but yeah, that 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 memory. I just uh, I was telling Kelly this morning. So I have to find. There's a picture I have somewhere of that. Pasic and and I I found it. I'm glad I did because it was such a great memory. And you guys, that was one of the greatest evening concerts ever. Pasic. That I mean, do you remember that? It was just I, very very well, Johnny. Yeah. I do. We all we all felt that way. Yeah. Uh, it was it was just this big love fest of of uh, drummer the hair stand over the back of my neck as I'm talking about this because the band came ready to play too. Wow. And uh, they actually chose the songs that they wanted me to play. You know, it's like, well, wait a minute. I thought we got to choose the song. They said, no, no, you're playing this and you're playing this. And it's like, well, okay. You know, I like both of them. So, okay. And and um, to have Jake lead it off uh, with the, the, the Good Earth, which was all, the, you know, one of the great Woody Herman uh, yeah. charts of all time and it set the course for the night it's like okay we all have to bring it here you know and nobody's yeah. trying to outdo anybody because it was all kind of different kind of music but we we got to be who we are and who we were when we remember this band which is what what do you what do you expected what are you going to bring yeah. to the band yeah exactly i mean my takeaway from it watching it was that right there was none of that anybody trying to there was not even a a, a smidge of that it was really yeah. just everybody 
playing their best to to honor the music, you know, right, and to right. and to honor, you know, the fact that you guys were so lucky and blessed to to be there at that time and in, in your lives to be in that band and hold yeah. that chair, you know, even if it wasn't for very long, it was. No. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, to have that to have that opportunity. Actually, mine was only a six month st- stand. I told him I would stay on for a year. He was looking for somebody to stay on for a year. And Ray Brown hired me off of the band to move to L.A. And so I said, I owe you six months worth. So, you know, anytime you need help, call me. And he did. I went back on the band about 15 times in the next, uh, I don't know, seven, eight years. And uh, would wow. do two weeks at a time or something. So I think I got my year in eventually. But uh, he held you, me to absolutely, that. Absolutely, yeah. I didn't realize that, Jeff. I, I, I assumed you were there for, you know, for... A good amount of time, so that's that's interesting. Yeah, I yeah. think a lot of people do. We did three recordings in one month. The month I got off the band, January of '78, we did three recordings, and one was a Grammy nomination. So everybody thought, "Oh, he must have been," because Woody's band recorded once every three years or something yeah. by that point. So uh, I think that's why people think I, I was on the band a little longer the first time. You know? Yeah. Now, were you playing with with Woody or Ray Brown? You told me a story a long time ago. Um, that you played right here down the street from where I live in Cohasset, Mass. I think I have this right. And Buddy and you were on the same bill? Right. Is that right? Okay. And was it, do you remember, was it the Music Circus in Cohasset, Mass? Okay. I live literally three-tenths of a mile up the street from it. Um, And I think of you, honestly, and you told me a story about, and this is with all respect to Buddy, but, but you kind of ate his lunch that day, I think, if I, if the story goes... And he didn't like it. He didn't appreciate uh, that. We're gonna have the hate mail. Um, no, 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 no. This but, is but, well, buddy. Buddy was in a lousy mood, and I had only been on the band for two weeks. But I went on the band with everything memorized. I mean, you go on that band ready, like you own the chair, you know. Yeah. And, and who were who you playing with at that point, Jeff? Sorry. Woody's band. Yeah, it was Woody's band. Okay. Joe Lovato yeah. on tenor and and Mark Johnson on bass. And, uh, you know, we had a hell of a band. Alan Vizzuti played lead trumpet. And we was, he was getting the band ready to go to Europe. So we, and we were we were all we were hitting on all cylinders. And at the end of two weeks, we really were clicking. And so we went on first, you know. And Woody was kind of grumbling, like, "No, I want to go on last," you know. And like I remember him saying, "Put them on first, you know." And the, the, the competitor in, in, in Woody. And uh, so that night, I was playing a cymbal that was half eaten because I kept grinding it away because I kept cracking it. It's the only time I used a crash cymbal. And it was an old A that I traded a high school buddy, and and it just kept cracking. So it was kind of like three quarters of a cymbal, yeah. And had a flat side to it, and it was about head level. And after the after their gig, Lenny Demusio, unbeknownst to me, this guy I'm twenty, I'm twenty three, and a guy comes up to me and he says, "Hey kid, you're too good to play a cymbal that looks and sounds like that." And I said, "Oh, thank you. He's my card." Come out tomorrow, we'll go set you up. And that's the night I got my Aveda Zildjian wow. endorsement at that wow. gig. Yeah. And the band was swinging. We had a great night. We all felt good. Got off the bandstand. Buddy came up mad. He was mad at the band. And he fired one of the trumpet players early in the set. And it was, I don't know, maybe three or four tunes in the set. And I said, man, I have so much respect for Buddy. He's my, one of my biggest heroes. I don't want to see this. You know, yeah, it's yeah. not a good night. He's not having a good night. So I went on the bus, you know, and, and read a book for the end of the gig. And then we took off and got a message later from Bill Byrne. But he said, tell that drummer he sounded good, you know, and that was about it. But Lenny took me to meet him. And we went up into the dressing room, and I thought, well, Lenny's got carte blanche, you know, Aveda Zildjian and Buddy. And, you know. 
And he walk, he just throws open the dressing room door, and Buddy, uh, Buddy is putting on his toupee in the mirror. <laughs> this is not good timing. No, no. Out of my who told you you could kind of bang slam the door? And I said, "Thanks, Lenny." You know, I never did get to meet Buddy on the right under the right circumstances. There was always a, always something like that. <laughs> you know, Shelly Mann tried to introduce me to him. He says, hey, "You know Jeff Hamilton?" He said, "No." Right yeah, on the Woody's bed. <laughs> well, you better watch it because one of these days he's going to hand both of us our butts. And Buddy says, "Oh yeah," you know. It's like, oh my god, I can't. <laughs> oh man, I couldn't win with Buddy. I couldn't, you know. So anyway, yeah, that was a great night. We had a really good night with the band, and um, the band just kept getting better through that whole period, you know, through the European tour and all. But that was wow. that was quite a memorable night. That was my Zildjian endorsement night. That How about that? The so graciously offered. So yeah, that's that's a what a great story. Yeah, and and I yeah, Lenny would have been right down the street too. You know, it's right in our backyard. So yeah. wow, and 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 from that gig, as you said, you got you got tapped to do the Ray Brown gig, and and then and that's what made you move to L.A. was was that yeah that gig. yeah. Yeah, I'd been to New York just enough to know I didn't want to, to live there. I was on Lionel Hampton's band in 75, and I stayed at, on 46th Street between Broadway and 7th as a, as a Century Paramount Hotel, eleven fifty a day, $11.50 a day. And it's like, I don't, I don't think I want to live here, you know. So when I got off Hamp's band, it was like, I, you know, I, I, I want to see what L.A.'s like. I've never been there. Let me see what that's like. And so I'd made a couple of trips with Monty Alexander Trio and John Clayton on bass, and I really loved L.A. And I, as you know, I was a tennis player for 30-some years. Yeah, yeah. Like, you can play tennis all the time out here, and you can get a court. You can, you know. And and I'd met Ray Brown, and Ray uh, implied that he wanted to keep his eye on me and, you know, that he was going to call me one of these days for something. And when that call came, it was on Woody's band in 77. Yeah. So I I relocated to L.A. to to replace – no, I didn't replace. The drummer in the group, the L.A. Four, left the group. His name is Shelly Mann. Yes. And so uh, they needed a drummer to come in, and Ray and Bud Shank hired me in that group with Lorindo Almeida on guitar. And that was my move to L.A. in 78, January 78. Wow. And and there you stayed, yeah, 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 and and really kind of establish establish yourself there as a as a you know like a I mean session work and and teaching and as well as touring and yeah, not so much the teaching and not too much session work, just enough. And the session work was really nice because um, I didn't have to be a session studio sausage that went in and sounded like somebody else. The session yeah. work I got, they were. I'd had kind of a, a reputation for what I did, <clears throat> and they were calling me for what I do. So that was that was kind of nice at 24, 25 years old to not be told to sound like somebody else on a on a on a serial commercial. You know, I mean, they, yeah, I was getting, yeah. I was getting studio calls to to play the way I play. That's great. Yeah, that's great. And and you grew up in Indiana, right? And that's and started playing, you know, lessons, formal lessons at a young age, and. And I, I asked Peter this question the other day, and and uh, it was so, a, a similar sort of question. But would you say that you knew pretty much at a very young age that this was what you were going to do? I mean, was there any any ever? Did you ever think of anything else you might want to do, or was it always like this is what I'm going to do? I'm going to be a drummer. I didn't think of anything else seriously. Yeah. Um, and, but I always uh, I, I remember asking my snare drum teacher. When I was about nine, can I make any money doing this? And he goes, "Yeah, if you're the best." 
And it's like, <laughs> okay, so you got to win the contest. You, I started eight eight years old, you know, the, yeah, the snare yeah. drumming, and at, at that time, that teacher would not let you get a drum set until you you won your first contest on snare drum, and you couldn't enter the contest until you were twelve. So I had five years of rudimental snare drumming, which was a blessing in disguise because it was like wind Jeffy up and let him go, let him rip. I was in, I was in Nard. Uh, yeah. You're old enough to know that, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. absolutely. When I, when I was 12, I was in Nard, and, and that was a big accomplishment for me uh, to do that. And then I won my first contest shortly after that. Then I got it to a drum set that I could start playing you know, drums, learning drums. And I thought, man, these hands are happening, but whose feet do these belong to? <laughs> so, uh, I think like anybody who starts off on snare drum and then it's like, oh, I got to do this too, you know? So. Oh, yeah. that's. But I, I'm sure it didn't take long. and I'm sure it... It's, yeah, still and I, take, it's still taking a long time, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when I asked that question, it, it's probably, a, it, you know, might seem obvious to people, but I, I asked that because I just, I feel like, you know, you have such focus uh, and, and all the time that I've known you, which we know now is over 30 years, you know, I mean, it's, um, I, I think it's important for, for students, for, you know, young drummers, older drummers to realize that the amount of work and focus it takes to get to the level or even get near the level that you're at, you know, and, um, you, you can't half-ass it, I guess is what I'm saying. I know. No, from, I, I, from- right. You're right. And you, you haven't done that in your career. Uh, you know, everything has been a hundred percent and you don't mess around you do the heck out of your job, whatever it is. And so, and people are still talking about the job, you know, that you, you did at Zildjian and, well, thank and referring you. to you as like the, you know, it wouldn't have been the same if he wasn't there. So uh, we have that in common, I think. But the hundred percent of, of yeah, don't go any 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 into anything halfway. You know, mean what you do. And I, I, I've been laughing about this lately because you know I get I get made fun of because I can't remember the oven temperature at which to bake a chicken <laughs> for how many minutes. But I can go on Woody Herman's van and play every chart in the book, from 1977, and it's you know it's selective uh, memory, I guess. You know, yeah, but yeah. that meant a hundred percent to me to learn that it was a big deal. And a chicken is a chicken, you know. I mean, it's like, <laughs> oh, you know, I'll get to that later, maybe. So I think it's selective uh, for all of us what you choose to spend a hundred percent on. And the other thing is, you can really be into something a hundred percent, but you don't have any talent. So you're wasting your time. So it, there has to be a talent factor there and then a passion for it for you to continue on that path of what really does it for you. Like what, you know, the, I'm, I'm not going to be happy doing this job. I'd rather, I want to be playing drums with these people in this genre and really focus on, on what that is. And that for me, it was I, my four goals as a young man were play with Oscar Peterson, Ray Brown, Woody Herman, and Count Basie. And you just set those goals and work toward them, but it takes a whole lot to get there, you know. So, yeah. uh, but you got to have some talent, I think, to get. Uh, we can't sell the talent short on on. You know, I, I tell students that all the time: is yeah, you can be passionate about something, but do you think you can do this? You know, yeah. are you yeah. talented enough to to sit in that chair? Well said. Yep, you're right. I mean, you can have all the, like you say, all the uh, dedication and and uh, you know and and you know, ambition and everything else, but you're right. You've got to have the talent. I mean, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to get to play with those people without the talent. Well, the reverse is true too. I grew up with so many people 
beautiful hands. They, I, they just looked like they were born with a pair of sticks in their hands or a pair of brushes. And it was like, man, I wish my hands looked and sounded like that, you know, and you're standing next to them in a snare line in a marching band and, and they quit after high school or they quit after college. Wow. Or they, and, yeah. and you always wonder what happened to these people? Because I wish I had those hands, you know, Yeah. Yep. but they, they, and they had all the talent in the world, but they, they didn't want to continue, you know? So that's yep. the reverse is true. You can be big on talent and not have the passion or the ambition to go forward. That's a, a, another great point. Yep. I, I, a very good friend of mine who studied with Alan Dawson, uh, with great Fred Buddha here in Boston, um, who was sort of like, when I started playing drums, he was the same age, but he had been playing a few years already and was a sort of mentor. And he's a very successful CPA, has his own uh, firm, does really well, but kind of just stopped at a point. And that's a that's a really good point you made that he... But what did he learn from Alan Dawson that is instilled in his new career about the discipline of learning and the focus and the concentration and you know it, it whatever you that's why I tell yeah. the students that I've had in the past is whatever you learn from this music it's you're gonna it's gonna relate to whatever you choose to do because what it took for you to get this good and to care this much about what you're doing just take that to the next whatever it's going to be for you and and apply that. And it's, I mean, it's been proven. Everybody that's in band in school does better in all these subjects. And there's just something about music that helps people deal with other people well, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, all that, we're getting off into another, another area. No, but. this, this is great. This is, that's what we do here, Jeff. We no, just, I mean, no, I meant to we say, we're not talking yeah. about me, John, you know, this is an interview. <laughs> I, I thought this was the, <laughs> now, where were uh, we? <laughs> I know, where were, we were talking about you. <laughs> And speaking of you, and speaking of you, I love you, and I'm so glad to see you. This is this is great. It's long overdue. Um, when did when did you? Um, this is this is a really. This people are going to go. Why does he ask such dumb questions? Poor Jeff. No, but was was there a time where you really started to focus? I, I you're a cymbal player. I think of you. You're a fabulous brush player. Um, but you know, I remember. The late great Armin Zildjian, who just adored you and loved your playing so much, and Lenny, of course, Lenny Demuzio, and you were like you're any any cymbal company's dream in terms of your cymbal playing. So, was there a time where you started to really focus on your your ride beat and yeah. how you and yeah, okay, was that in, was that John Van Olen? Was that before that? Was um. I was, I was, well, Gene Krupa was my first influence at five years old. I thought I got to do that, slick back my hair and dress like him. And, and then, you know, everybody, I, I went along with the crowd that said, Buddy's faster and more dynamic. And, and so I kind of went from Gene to Buddy, still kind of keeping Gene here, but boy, Buddy was doing it. And, you know, I'm like 13, 14, 15 and seeing Buddy's band live and then being rebuffed, trying to get an autograph later. <laughs> <laughs> and uh well gene's a nice guy maybe i should go back to gene you know and, and uh and so all that rudimental buildup, all from the snare drumming because my drum teacher said here's how the rudiments are applied to the drum set if you get now you got all these 26 rudiments at the time that's all we knew yeah. 26 rudiments still all i know due to 26 <laughs> rudiments and here's how they apply to the drum set 
And so it was easy. Six stroke rolls just flowed around the tom-toms at the snare. And it's like, man, I can do this. You know, so Buddy and Gene were great influences on that. And then Roy Burns gave a clinic, knocked me out. I saw Ed Shaughnessy, same kind of thing. It's like, wow, they're all applying this. Louis Belson, happy birthday yesterday, you know, yes. uh, yep. 98, he would have been, I think, or something. And so so I start seeing this and a dear friend. I can't just pass over Louis Belson like that. Um, seeing these people approach the drum set like this, it was it was a big deal to me to focus on the drums. The cymbals were an accessory. And little did I pay attention to the early Buddy Rich playing with Ray Brown and Jazz Philharmonic Records and, and Art Tatum, that the brush playing and his cymbal beat were phenomenal. And when I got to play with Ray Brown, we talked about drummers one day, and I asked him who his favorite was. And this surprises everyone, but he said Buddy Rich. Yeah. Wow. He said, he will be in the trenches with you playing quarter notes. It doesn't make any difference if there are 20 tenor players standing in front of you or not. He's in the trenches with you, and he's he'll go to battle with you to the very end. And we had fun doing it, and we did it well together. So there was another aspect that I missed of Buddy, you know, until yeah. I talked to Ray about it and then did more homework on really what that was. And his cymbal beat was incredible in, in those days. With his band, I think it changed. You know, with the big, he had to be Buddy Rich, he had to be the leader. So all of that changed. Sure. Yeah. But but not making a band at Indiana University my freshman year, I thought, you know, there are three bands. Surely I'll get in one. And um, I didn't make a band. Wow. Uh, another freshman that year, um, somebody named Erskine, got the top band. And uh, so I thought, well, I, I guess I'll have to do what he did. You know, I don't know who this guy is coming in from East Coast, but I guess, I'll, you know, and two other very good drummers. In fact, uh, Bill Molinoff, who invented five mallet playing on marimba mm. in, in Germany, we got the third band. And so he split. Uh, he didn't want to play drum set. He wanted to go study with Gary Burton at, at Berkeley in Boston. So I got in the third band my second semester. So that kind of got my attention. Like, why don't they want me? Mm. And and it was I was playing too much. You know, I was playing a lot of sold drums. And so John Von Olin, who was in Indianapolis and a you know, veteran of the Kenton band and Woody Herman band, and I'd go hear him. I started hearing him play. I heard him with the Kenton band sit in once, and it was like, yeah, he's good, but he doesn't have any technique. You know, so, so seeing him live in a small group is like, I want that ride symbol that he's focused on that ride. And I took a lesson with him. And the first lesson, I was 19. That was after my uh, sophomore year at Indiana. And I play, he said, play for me. So I'm blowing out the windows, you know, ending it with what make you big it so hard. Wham, you know, <laughs> and he, he, I turned around and looked at him and he's standing in the doorway kind of like this, you know, and shell shocked. And he says, well, I don't know what you were doing, but uh, it was impressive. And I'm thinking, oh, I guess I was over his head, you know. I said, well, thank you. And he says, well, what do you want from me? And I said, uh, your approach to the ride symbol, your sound. And it made me think about all the things I liked about him. His brush mm -hmm. playing I love, setting up a big band, his idea for melodic fills and soloing. And he said, well, then get up. So I got up off the drums, and he was all arms and legs, and he just sat down, and he threw the stick at the cymbal and went, dag-a-day, dag-a-day, dag-a-day. And my knees buckled, and the hair stood up on the back of my neck. I said, that's it. That, that's it. Show me that. Yeah. And from that point on, 
You are correct. I, I am a cymbal player. From that point on, I became a cymbal player during that lesson with John Von Olin. Wow. And, and, that, and that really kind of became, amongst other things, like a, a real main focus of your playing. That, that, yes. Yeah. I, that was my go-to and still is. If, if you've got that going every night, you know, because everybody's going to hit a wall with a fill sometimes or, or yeah. comping, you know, independence issues and coordination. But if you've got the ride symbol going and you bring everything else to the ride symbol is my theory, that that's your go-to. You're not going to have a bad night. But we start focusing on the almighty Phil and the almighty solo and the right symbols over here going, da, 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 you know, <laughs> not making it. But yeah, if we're yeah. thinking, we, I think of a third arm out here playing the ride symbol while I'm doing all this other stuff and your awareness is, is big. Uh, you get the whole audience and your awareness. Sometimes you have to leave some of them out. You get the whole awareness of the band around you. And and you're not just playing right here with the blinders on, getting through your your double paradiddles. You know, I mean, you're playing music based on the sound and the lovely warm sound you're getting from the ride cymbal, and then the yeah. same approach to the drums. You let the stick drop through the drums. You don't force anything. Von Olin said, if you have to tighten up to play anything, don't play it. It takes you out of your mindset. That's that's great. That's that's huge. Yeah, and that's and you impart that to your students. That's that's kind whenever of whenever I teach, yeah, I don't, I yeah. don't, I don't do much teaching, but yeah, that's or anybody wants to talk about it, I tell you know. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's that's um, it, and it makes sense that it goes back that far, you know, that you know, nineteen, twenty years old, that that's that's kind of the root of where it all started. Right. You got my yeah. attention. Yeah. 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 And you, and, you and said, I heard the difference. I mean, I heard the difference immediately. The players I was playing with at the time would tell you, you know, wow, what happened to you overnight? First of all, you're swinging, it's looser, your sound is big and warm, you know, it's easy to crawl into your beat, it's, you know, it's big, warm, fuzzy sound, you know, you're not doing this in our ribs, you know, with your ride cymbal, and, you know, so yeah. all those comments came, like, within a week or two of, of that lesson. And so, was uh, it, was there an adjustment that you had to make, Jeff, in terms of, of how you hold the stick, or how you, um, how you, you know, your stroke, or was it really... Or, or did some of it come from relaxing more and just, you know, listening yes. and breathing? Relaxing, yes. That was the main part of it. You know, yeah. a, a lot of finger control. Uh, I was using too much finger control, and, and a lot of it was this, and arm motion. I'm not a big arm motion player. Mel Lewis, the less you move, uh, the more energy you're going to preserve. And why aren't you making it look easy? You're making it harder than it is. So make it look easy. It should be effortless. Yeah. So minimum movement is what I've always believed in from Javon Olin and then Mel, who was Von Olin's mentor, and then Tiny Khan before Mel. You know, so all that was kind of passed down to just, you know, I mean, Mel Lewis looked like he was a bank teller. If you just saw him from the chest up, you didn't know he had a set of drums under him. So yeah, yeah. Um, that that economy of motion really sank into me, and 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 not much arm motion. I still don't use m much arm. I'm not a uh, you know to order in order to hit a symbol. I think you raise it up and you let the stick drop on the symbol. I don't think you need a big wind up to hit something. I think it's you got a piece of metal. You need a, a, a piece of wood. And you need to strike something. So do we need the the pitcher's wind up to get to it, or can we just go? Dang, that's where it needs to be. Yeah, so yeah. your focus is is more compact than on where you need to do it and what you need to do. And 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 I I would assume that you um you would agree that 
one's time is going to be better playing that way as well, right? You're going to, you're going to be able to play better time, a better well, beat. At first, no, because you're so relaxed. So it gets a little lazy. So that's where the intensity has to come in from here because you're used to this. The, dun, 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 dun. the intensity is from here to here. And now it's coming from here. And this is doing this. So yeah. you got to be thinking, ding, 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 ding. And there's your motion, one bounce. I mean, one motion and three bounces. And you let this get the fingers off the stick, except for this. And let it do the work. We all do that at a fast tempo anyway. Mm-hmm. So I just slow it down and do it. And and the stick gets the sound for you. So a tighter fulcrum here, build up this muscle and let the let let the I mean that's gotta be tight, that fulcrum, and let the let the uh, let the stick do the work without controlling it so much. That's, so yeah. then, then your time gets better, but you gotta sing your time. You gotta sing where your beat is. Have four drummers line them up and have this have them sing their cymbal beat. It's gonna be ta 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 da. Another one dink dink a dink dink a dink. Another spang spangalang spangalang. Another ta ta ka ta ka ta. They're all different, so they have to be in touch with how they're singing it, in order to put the stick on the cymbal and get that out of the stick onto the cymbal. Yeah, and drummers don't sing. Drummers don't say they get the, all yeah. the mouths are closed and the teeth are clenched and you grit your teeth through the wall for that fill. <laughs> Bang, you know. Now let's get back to playing time. You know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's great. This is this is a a great lesson. I don't want to have you. I don't want you to give too much away for free here. We'll, yeah, you know they started two hundred dollars, Johnny. So I'll, I'll get you my address. All right. <laughs> left. I'm sorry. Left handers are two hundred and fifty. Ah, <laughs> oh, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> Darn. Oh, man. Oh, by the way, Bob Terry is watching our friend. Bob oh, Terry. man. Bob Terry. Uh, very responsible Terry. for me being with Mapex and a great friend. He was at Indiana that year, too. He was a freshman with me at IU. Wow. No, I yeah. didn't know that. Wow. Small world. Yeah. You guys go back that far. That's, That's cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Bob's a Bob's. And I, we're going to talk about Mapex, too, because I, I was going to just segue backwards a little bit. Um, Talking about Zildjian for one second, um, I used to work there. For those of you who don't know, and uh, that's where Jeff and I met. No, I'm kidding. I think probably people do know that, but um, if you don't mind me saying, Jeff, I, I think it'd be interesting for people to know that uh, you were very integral in the development of the Zildjian K Constantinople symbols in the in the '90s. Uh-huh. Um, and I, you know, I I enjoyed working with you during that time, and. Uh, you know, I just, I, I think it's, you deserve, whether you want it or not, some credit for that and, uh, and giving some guidance and some great, uh, input in the development and, uh, and all that. So. Well, thank you Kudos. for the credit. I, I told you the price of lessons. My bank account number happens to be, <laughs> um, the, uh, <laughs> the, at the time Lenny, Lenny was, uh, was asking me exactly what I was looking for in a symbol, you know, and I was, uh, by being such a Mel Lewis fan and symbols that he gave me and, uh, Lawrence Marable had an old symbol that was an old, all these are old K original K's from Istanbul, K Zildjian. And, and I was playing a lot of those. And, mm-hmm. uh, so I just said, well, I, I, the shape of the symbol from talking with Mel, Shelley, Papa Joe, Philly Joe Jones, and Ed Thigpen, I mean, all the people that I loved and, and, and studied with or studied them to the point where, you know, they said, get out of here. Uh, I took <laughs> all of that symbol information 
and put it together in what I thought it it should be that that would that might be the the symbol that I would want to play, and not necessarily an old K because you had to go through a hundred of those for to find one good one, you know, as we yeah. all know. Sure. Yeah. And, and so. So I came up with with the kind of shape, the bell, what I thought the bell should be, and and talked to you at Zildjian about that. And uh, yeah, we were on the ground floor of, of those symbols uh, becoming what Constantinople is the the biggest selling selling symbol for for Zildjian, right? It's it's uh, a it, I, it's one of the best. You know, I, I think it's probably not the biggest just because of the the price tag, but certainly in the in the genre of you know, jazz, yeah, um, K type symbols. Yeah, it's, they were successful. They are successful. Yeah. So, so it, uh, you know, I understand there were others involved in their input, uh, but uh, I, I don't know if there was anyone before Lenny asked me to do it. I don't know the timeline on, on uh, what that was about. So, uh, I don't think uh, there was. I, 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 like we said before, I think. I remember speaking with you at a at a NAMM show and and uh, having just really just joined the company and meeting you for the first time and you were the you know you were the go to guy. Well, in in that case, I have two bank accounts. <laughs> <laughs> there's the there's the one in the Caymans and then there's the one in L.A. <laughs> no, but but it was um, I I just wanted to, I wanted to share that because I I just I just feel that um, you know for what it's worth I just it's important that people you know you're you're associated with having great sounding symbols whether it's you know your your work with bosphorus and putting those guys on the map and now uh you know what you've developed with crescent and the symbols that you have i mean it's 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 who you are it's your sound and and i just i just thought people as drummers people should know that you know whether uh yeah thank you um yeah, i have absolutely. to say that 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 i i think where we are now with Mark Love and at Sabian, that he's really perfected all of the issues about the symbol. And uh, as far as the structure and how long it lasts, how long will it hold up? Uh, and, and Mark has done a fantastic job at, uh, at, at, at Sabian for making my symbol, the hammer tone symbol. Yeah, yeah. They're beautiful symbols. Absolutely. Yeah, I got it right where I want it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. Beautiful. And I... I I think I see some other friends here. I'll just say a quick hello to uh, David Hakim at Modern Drummer, of course. Nice. Thank you. And uh, I thought I saw, I thought I saw Michael Vosbeen, but I maybe I didn't. No, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, Our, another he checked friend. in. He knows. He knows all that history. That my you know business partner at at yeah. Bosphorus and Crescent. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you, you've you've tr created a tremendous legacy both in your, you know, your your playing your your you know, your recordings, but also in what you've done for the, for the industry, you know, with, with drums and cymbals. And, um, I, I know I'm sort of jumping backwards here a little bit, but, uh, I remember your involvement with Remo uh -huh. and, and with our friend, Steve Edelson, the late, great Steve Edelson. And we were, we were talking offline about the, um, and I, I'd love for you to just take a second and talk about the drums. You're with Mapex now. And we're going to definitely get to that because that's, that's where you are and that's where you're going to stay. But I told you, I remembered seeing you play at the Montreal Drum Fest, and this would have been, would it, would it have been the late 90s, early 2000s? Maybe? 96, maybe? 90, wow. Something like that. Okay, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I'm going to let you tell the story because it's great the way you told it before, but um, but I just remember your performance was show-stopping, as always, but the sound of your drums was phenomenal with just two overhead mics, and 
and I'll let you kind of set it all up now, if you wouldn't mind. <laughs> all right. This was the uh, second edition of the Remo drum, so it wasn't the final Gold Crown series, uh, Master Touch or something, but they really were sounding great. And they were, they had a maple veneer on it, you know, uh, Vinwood is what they called the veneer. Right. And I had followed Virgil Donati and Bobby Rock play, trading, like, you know, the. <laughs> <laughs> the great Montreal massacre with, I mean, it was like they were just blowing each other off of their platforms with, they each had about 10 drums and 10 cymbals and they were just, yeah. <laughs> it was something to behold, man. I mean, the floor of the stage was shaking, you know, and, uh, and I'm next uh, uh, with a four piece drum set and three, <laughs> cymbals, you know, and so, but I, you know, that never bothered me. I'll follow this, you know, everybody else says, Oh no, this is going to be a disaster. What's he going to do? You know? And, and so they finished, and uh, it's phenomenal. And they get off, and, and I, I have them take the risers off, too. I want to sit on the stage. Just give, right. me, yeah. give me a carpet, and I'll sit on the stage, you know. And so those, there's like 20 microphones. Where do we put these? And I said, I just would like two overheads on this, you know. And it was a concert hall, you know. Yeah. Said, no, we're not going to. After that, we're not going to hear it. I said, yeah, I, I know. I, but believe me, I, I can get my sound. I want to bring the audience to me. So I just would like two overheads, you know, and they, they begrudgingly did this. And, and then the guy said, well, we have a backdrop. We have like, th we have three different backdrops. And one was like a, a walnut dark wood and they put it down and I asked Steve to go in the middle of the hall. And I said, so how's it sound? He says, good. I said, what's your other backdrop? And they put down like a maple backdrop and it a little, a little lighter than the walnut color. And I said, how does that sound? He says, it sounds pretty much the same. And I said, okay, all right, we have one more. And it was this blonde wood that matched my drums. I said, how does this sound? He goes, sounds pretty much the same. I said, let's leave this one because it looks good with the drums. It matches my drums. <laughs> and I went out and I played a ballad for two and a half minutes with the brushes. And you could hear a pin drop there. It's like... That was, a, you know, I learned from my elders, don't go out and try to do what you are following, you know, be yourself and do what you do and bring the audience to you. So that's how that, that sec segment got started. But, and, and with, if you can, if you know how to get your balance and the drums sound good, I love the Remo drums. I played them for what, what 90 from 94, maybe, or something. I played yeah, the Remo yeah. drums and early, early I had my sound and everybody who played my drums admitted even though they'd make fun of, of them later, they admitted to me, man, these drums sound great. Yeah. But it's the image that everybody hears with their eyes and not with their ears. So uh, I, I love those drums. And I would, I, I would have kept playing them, except they stopped making them. And I was the last person to find out. And Bob Terry was the person to tell me that they, they weren't making drums anymore. It's like, oh, okay. But we, I have a drum set in my trunk that I'll give you, you know. So. <laughs> So he and Russ Miller had uh, had had been in cahoots over what drums I would like to play, and and uh, in, went right down to the finish, the same color and everything. So, and they knocked me out, and they are incredible drums. They're the easiest drums I've ever ever played in my life. And big, I get hung up one night on the bass drum. It's like, man, I've never heard a bass drum sound this great before. And another night it'll be the floor tom, and it's like I'll just lay on it for a while, you know. So they're, they're really, fun. it's a phenomenal product and hats off to Russ Miller for, for engineering this whole mess because uh, <laughs> he was an engineering student. He, he wasn't a music student. He was, so yeah. take that in. You interviewed Russ, so you know that, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Ru Russ is a, boy, he's a, he's a, uh, a force when it comes to yeah. all that. And, and, you know, Jeff, when I heard you were playing Mapex, 
that to me, you know, they, they were just making moves, getting better and better and better, you know, all these years. And then when Russ got involved, as we said, he really took it up, a, you know, another notch. And, right. and then when you, honestly, when I, when I heard you were playing their drums, I thought, wow, that, that is, that speaks volumes in terms of, you know, you could play any drum you want. Any drum company would want to have you. And the fact that you're playing Mapex really speaks for how great the drums are, how great they sound. That's what you, that's what you're all well, about. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, that's, Absolutely. that's, all, that's always been kind of what I'm about. I mean, every endorsement I've gotten has come to me. I don't go seeking endorsements, which I would like to see some other artist take that approach instead of what can the company do for me? I'm a big shot. Um, and so when you have that kind of a relationship with the company where they want you to play their instrument, then you can work together on what it is you're looking for if it's not exactly what you're looking for. And in this case, it was exactly, you know, so there, there, there weren't any things that needed to be changed. It was the drums were perfect. And I'm, I still feel that way. And I still too, too, I use two overheads on the drums and I still am in battle with sound engineers that, Oh, I'll just leave the bass drum mic here in case I need it. And I said, have you heard me play? No. <laughs> have you heard the drums? No. Okay. Let me just listen to this first. And then, if you need to add anything, well, I'll just have them here in case. It's like, no, no, you're ruining my reputation. You know, yeah, I just, no. just two overheads, you know, I'll get the sound. Engineers are funny. They really are front of house guys, you know, and, and this is no disrespect for, toward them, but yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. And, and I'll tell you the reason it is, is because a lot of them that are under 40 years old have never stood in front of an acoustic band to hear what it's supposed to sound like. Right. And so, I I can't blame them for not knowing, but I do blame them for not being open to listen to people that have been doing this for 45 years. And I don't care what the new model of microphone you have, you're going to get my sound. And that microphone is not going to be that big of a deal. Yeah. But we're playing Pianissimo. You're not going to need to turn it up, you know, and all the things. So it's just the lack of knowledge of how to get this music. Right, and then right. they they run off in a huff and pout the rest of the time and don't talk to you afterwards. And oh, he's a grumpy old guy. And it's like, yeah, but you heard how it sounded, right? I I know, and I and I think I I in my situation that I've playing in rock bands too, Jeff. It it seems to be that they kind of want to do it fast and easy. They they you know almost like a cookie cutter. We're gonna put a hole in the bass drum head. We're gonna muffle the shit out of the bass drum. We're just gonna go for a you know. It's it's like well no man I I I have a full head in the front I got a little muffling inside I want to hear the bass drum I want to feel the bass drum I want it to boom a little bit you know don't be afraid of a little resonance in the bass drum many of them don't know and they have their sound there are a lot of older engineers too that had their sound and I I actually had a, a confrontation with somebody that was about my age and he said well we'll do it your way but that's not my sound that I normally get and I said people aren't buying this recording for your sound. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. For, for the engineering, they're buying it for what you capture that I'm going to do, you know. And and he walked away. You know, I mean, there's no argument for that. Exactly, exactly. I, All you can do is compress it and ruin it, you know, or, or <laughs> with the, the equalize or whatever it is. But just can you get the natural sound of the drums? Which yeah. is why I was called for this session. You know, not long after I I saw you at the um, Montreal Drum Fest, and I, I'm sure. One or two times after that, at a PASIC, I saw you know the same setup where you had the overhead mics, 
we did these clinics with Steve Gadd, these mission from Gadd tours, you know, around the country and around Europe. And, and Steve applied the same principle that you applied, which was, you know, the first couple of clinics, they were in big auditoriums with a lot of people and they had a big sound system. And he had said ahead of time, you know, I really don't want to, I don't want to mic the drums like it's a big rock concert. I, I really want to hear the drums as one instrument, just exactly what you said. And finally, a, a few clinics in, he kind of put his foot down and he, and to me, who was the tour manager who then had to go and put my foot down to the sound engineer. But they really, it was, I felt bad, like I was offending them. And I said, no, I, I said, he really just wants to, he just wants some overheads. He wants to have it. He wants to be able to hear the drums, but not overpower people. Um, and we finally got it dialed in exactly like you said. It was, I think he did have a bass drum mic, um, but, but very low. And, and, and I think that was because he liked to have a little bit of bass drum in his monitor that, okay. you know, and to do that, he had to have a little bit in the, you know, but, um, but the sound that he got was to your point, it was like a, this beautiful organic when, when a guy like you is playing the drums or a guy like Steve or Peter, you can make all those things sound like one, like one instrument. It's, you know, you don't have to worry about bringing the hi-hat up louder to match how hard you're hitting this. Yeah. All those things we know. And, and I think maybe a lot of sound engineers just don't understand that, you know, you've got the tools to, to make this, you know, acoustic instrument well, sound great. And in their defense, a lot of drummers don't have the tools to do that. You know, right. and, that, and they yeah. rely on a microphone to give them a bigger backbeat on the snare drum. So I need this at so many dBs, and this, these tom mics pick this up better than this. And so it, 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 you become reliant on on those. But acoustic music is a different ball game, and that, that's where I think a lot of a lot of the engineers haven't experienced a lot of acoustic bands and and what players can do. All of our heroes, as you're telling me this story about Steve Gadd, all of our heroes. We're in a room in a band with one microphone in the center of the room. And you had to balance yourself with everybody else in the band. They knew how to play dynamically. They knew how to blend with other musicians. The minute you start close micing every instrument, even in a big band, you know, I don't like every instrument mic'd in a big band. Because mm -hmm. then you're, it's out of the hands of the band. It's in the guy, the guy at the board. And he doesn't know if this trumpet player's sound is louder than this or, you know, what, the deal is so you take it out of the hands the the band's hands that at that point but you know growing up having to blend and play with an upright bass without an amplifier is a big deal you need to learn yeah. how to do that before you even talk about the sound of the band and how you're going to fix the sound of the band That's, okay i'm off my soapbox no no that this is this is gold this is great i, I you know i I think we're giving people way too much free stuff here today. I don't know. This is. I'm glad to hear you say that, John. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna put Jeff's bank accounts up when we're done with this show. <laughs> the routing numbers. <laughs> I I do have a question, Jeff. In this, I don't. It'll know be the one answer. in red. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, Anthony uh, Cusina is asking what two microphone what two microphones do you choose, Jeff? Is there a, a, a specific mic or? Doesn't matter to me. A good quality. I don't want to. I don't want to entirely do their job for them. If you got microphones you like, then you know you can use them. I came back from Germany. I, I got probably at the time the greatest drum sound I've gotten on a trio recording I did. Wolfgang Hirschman, the great <laughs> retired German producer and engineer, yes. had a microphone here and he had a microphone here, and he had one six feet, uh, four feet in front of the bass drum. 
and that's all he used and he got my complete sound and i i listened to him on the play i asked him on the playback i've never seen mic placement like that how did you do this and i'd worked with him numerous times on other projects big band projects and he said where do you hear the music where do you hear your drums and i said you know right you're here and here and he said right and i just have a little to to give a little more presence and some more room sound to your bass drum and i came back and told three engineers that i work with in la and the, i love all of them steve genowick at capital uh has been al schmidt's right-hand man for years uh bill smith another right-hand man uh with al schmidt and i told them about this miking system and i told yeah. them what the mics were and steve says oh you want to do it let's set it up didn't sound good and he says i don't know what they did but i don't like what i'm getting and i said i don't like it either you know so yeah. there's a point where the engineer's knowledge of what to do and so it's yeah. not it's not just about model yeah. of microphone it's the person running the knobs that knows what to do with those mics and so i don't have a favorite mic i i've i've heard several overhead mics that i love on recordings and live yeah. uh, i do have to say the ones that surprise me is the one that uh, has been sold now, but um, Morton, who my friend, who was uh, the DPA microphones, and he invented those things. And and I I wouldn't let him clip them on. I don't want clip on mics on the drums. It chokes mm-hmm. the rim. Mm-hmm. And so he said, "All right, but let me just put them on a stand, and I want you to hear." And those were incredible. They were the smallest microphone, but they sounded incredible. Wow. So you know, I I don't want to always say you got to have this mic. You got it because yeah. you can have you know. If and I was room, back there running and it would sound terrible, you know. Yeah. And, and the room obviously makes a difference too. And, and all those other factors that you're talking about. And right. Uh, yeah. And very interesting. In that particular, that recording in Germany, was it, were all you guys in the same room or were you in it? Were yeah. you, I, you were. So. And there were, and there were no baffles and we did our trio setup. So bass is next to the hi hat. Yeah. And the piano yeah. is arm length from the bass player, you know, with, with his side kind of turn so he could turn to the side and see us. And uh, our usual piano trio setup. Yeah, and and it's you know there's so much to be said for as you pointed out, the fact that you can, uh, you know I mean play dynamically is beside the point, but you're you're accustomed to playing in a volume where you can hear everybody acoustically. You don't have to worry about everything having to be in the cans, right? I well, mean it's it, it's. The people I grew up wanting to play with, when if I ever got a chance to play with, I wanted to make sure I could hear them. Yeah. So why am I going to play louder than they are? I'll I'll match their intensity, but I still want to hear them. You know, yeah, that's one of the sure. pet peeves of mine in bass solos is that, and a lot of bass players are playing with their amps loud, so the drummer's beating hell out of the stuff. You're building a condominium over there during the bass <laughs> solo, and it's like it's a bass solo. I know you're doing it together, but the drums are are more active and louder than the bass solo. And so I, I'd like to hear the bass solo. You're going to have your chance to play it a minute, but let me hear the bass solo, you know? Yeah. So I think contour of what we do and orchestrate within the piece is sometimes overlooked. And I wanted to hear Ray Brown when he played a solo. So I would support Ray Brown and give him the energy and intensity that I thought he required. And he never asked me to do anything differently. So I, I was in on what he needed. I zoned in on what he needed. I applied. That's why he hired me for the job. He figured I knew what to do. You know, yeah. you don't have to tell somebody what to do if you got the right person. So, 
I, Philly Joe Jones in my lesson with him, I had a whole day with him from 11 o'clock to 7 at night. I was playing with Monty Alexander and John Clayton at Charlie's Playboy Lounge in Philadelphia. It was a pretty rough part of town. Wow, and yeah. linoleum floor and a wrought iron uh, fence around the bandstand to protect the band. And the uh, spin at piano. It was just an awful place, you know. So Bobby Durham, the great drummer, lived not too far away. He came in and stood to the left of the bandstand. And I had just replaced him with Monty. So I thought, oh, this is going to be good. Oh, you know? boy. Oh, boy. And, and I'm 21 at the time. And about two tunes later, Philly Joe Jones walks across the front of the drums and sits at the red vinyl booth next to the, the China symbol, the A swish that I was playing at the time. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. And so, and so I asked Philly Joe for a lesson that day. Durham wasn't very kind to me, you know, so I thought, well, how, how much worse could it be with Philly Joe? So John Clayton says, go meet Philly Joe. You transcribed him. He's a big hero. So I asked him for a lesson. I ended up getting a lesson the next day. I took three buses and a taxi to get to his, his brownstone. And, and one of the important things he told me was, if you can hear everyone in the band, he said, I should be more active. He said, you're laying there like a doormat for these guys. Make sure that you, you're more active. Let them know you're there. Punch them. And I said, well, Monty doesn't want me to play any louder. And he said, I didn't say anything about volume. I just said, let them know you're there, you know, nudge them a little bit, you know, yeah. if you can hear, and this is what he said, if you can hear everybody on any bandstand, if you can hear everybody acoustically, your volume is perfect. If you can't hear everybody acoustically, you're too loud. Wow. That's great. That's a rule to live by because we're also yeah. monitor crazy. Now we're getting a false sense of what it is that is coming out of the instrument. I, I'm exactly. talking about acoustic music now, you know, I mean, <clears throat> Yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah. Which, but you're right, though. I mean, and, and, and I think that even with acoustic music, probably people have gotten a little monitor crazy too with, yeah, with it being cool. a little louder than it, people playing at a louder volume than they, than they need to. Right. Um, I, I want to, as we get close to, uh, tight on time, we still have time. Um, when we were talking about Mapex, I wanted to talk about your snare drum that you designed for Mapex, the Maximus. Wow. Because we talked about your symbols with with wow. Crescent, you have they, brought it back to me, haven't you? I have brought, of course, Jeff. It's <laughs> it was always going to be about you, but <laughs> but I wanted to ask you is is uh, is your snare drum when when I had Russ on the show, he was talking about how the sort of strategy, the the goal of of some of his snare drums, and I think he mentioned yours as well, was to make it affordable as well as. Uh, right. You know, a great drum, needless to say, but is is that the the case with yours? Is it a more sort of moderately priced? That's, drum? From what I from what I understand, it is. Um, uh, I don't. I've, I've seen drums that <laughs> you know, either you want a car or a snare drum. You know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I think it's it's probably in there. It's where they they have it. Uh, I haven't paid too much attention to a lot of the others that are coming out or out, but I, I think it's probably in the ballpark. Yeah. But but I I he had he had almost designed the thing and then said, what changes would you make? And uh, we arrived at different bearing edges, top and bottom, and uh, a different strainer, uh, snare bed. I think a little difference on the snare bed. Um, the wood was fine. I wanted a warm, warm sound that you could that would still speak if you need some bebop comping, snapping off of it, you know, without mm -hmm. being too brittle sounding. And um, as you know, I play a lot of uh, in the Clayton Hamilton Jazz Orchestra, a, a large big band, and I do a lot of trio work. I play in mm -hmm. organ trios, 
and pretty much groups that I'm co-leader or leader of. And, and again, that's kind of where I want it. I, I like, I like where I'm at with that now. So I know what I need drum wise and cymbal wise to work in those settings. So to get a snare drum, it's going to work in a piano trio where you're whispering soft sometimes and the snare, the, the brushes are speak, are speaking well. And then you're clobbering, you know, shout chorus in a big band where it's yeah. got to be heard without being obnoxious. I want the warm sound to blend with the band, but still be heard by the audience. I never liked that term cutting through the band. Oh, that snare drum cuts through the, that symbol cuts through the, I don't, Mel Lewis said that to yeah. me one time. He says, why do I, I, he said, I love the guys I play with. I want a symbol that blends with the band. Right. I don't want to make music right. with the band. I don't want to cut through anything. I don't want something to stand out. I even want, I said the snare drum has to be the same color as the other drums. Otherwise people visually look at it as cutting through the band. That's you got a metal yeah. snare drum, therefore it's going to cut through the band where the other drums aren't visually. I mean, people listen with their eyes way too much. Yeah, that's a really John, good I'm point, over here. John. I'm over here, <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I I think Mapex guarantees that if you buy that drum, you'll sound they'll sound just like you, and I think that's great. They'll, well, they wanted to, but I told them not to do that because we'd sell more if they didn't bring that up. <laughs> I was going to say, and just see Jeff Hamilton for refunds. Right. Because right. <laughs> you're going to want your money back. That's right. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, that's great. Well, man, this has been, this has been a blast. And it's, we've, the time has just gone by as I knew it would. But um, I wanted to just quickly see if there's anything else we want to talk about besides having a great glass of wine tonight that I'm going to raise my glass in your honor for. All right, just, all right. It is, it's after five here, Jeff, so I'm, I'm nearing that time. That's um, why you're closing this thing off. <laughs> you had it. Okay, all right. I got you now. Uh, no, hey, and by the way, Bob Terry has just uh, very graciously jumped in and said your drum retails for, or map price is eight seventy nine. Okay. So that's a very reasonable price, all right. as you say, in this, in this day and age of either buying a car or a snare drum. <laughs> That's affordable. <laughs> oh, good news. Man. Yeah. That's good news. Yeah. But thank you so much for being here today. This is, it's just a. All right. Thank you, Johnny. Uh, it's nice to catch up again. Well, you haven't done that for a while. So it's nice, nice to be invited to be on your show. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Jeff. It's an honor. And, and I, I will say this, you know, and I, and I know everybody watching will agree you're, you're a treasure. You really are. You're just a, uh, a national treasure uh, musically and as a human and just everything else. You're just, um, I just honor our friendship so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. And, and, uh, I thank the world of you. So I, I appreciate having this time with you and, um, uh, you know, best of luck in what you're continuing to do. So thank you. Thanks. And, and, and right. you know, I don't know if you need both drum sets behind you. I've, I've, I've heard you and uh, <laughs> I want to concentrate on one. But... <laughs> you know, I was gonna. I was gonna open this whole thing by saying I was playing a little bit today. In fact, I really was before we got together, and I was. I was thinking. Hey, you, you know, know what? I, it's almost after five out here too. I, I gotta run. <laughs> I told people I wasn't responsible for their injuries caused during laughter, but I was thinking if you had to describe my playing, I sound like a one-armed right-handed drummer trying to sound like Jeff Hamilton. <laughs> So you're, you're good at playing the cha. <laughs> the, yes, the cha. <laughs> All right. Oh, man. 
Oh, big love to you, my friend. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for watching, everybody. Um, Big hand for Jeff Hamilton. (laughs) My hero. Thank you. All right.